Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang here. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I host this show and tell you, dear listener, about my debut cookbook. It's coming out October 24th, and it's called A Very Chinese Cookbook. We've got 104 incredible Chinese recipes that are fail-proof. They've been tested in our kitchens again and again. We've got dim sum, street food from Sichuan, dumplings from Shanghai, noodles from Taiwan, and American Chinese takeout classics. And if you want to hear the backstory of how this improbable cookbook came to be, look in the back catalog of this proof feed and search for the episode, My Father, the YouTube Star. Anyway, the book, again, is called A Very Chinese Cookbook. It's out October 24th. Find it at your favorite bookseller. Please, please, please buy it. My employment is on the line. Okay, not really, but kind of, just a bit. All right, on to this week's show. Snacks have been around, well, probably since someone stopped in the middle of the day and said, hey, I'm hungry. In fact, the oldest snack is believed to be pork rinds. Uh, do I even need to introduce who that is? That's the legendary Mark Summers, the genial host of Nickelodeon game shows and the host of Unwrapped on Food Network. We're devoting this episode of Proof to the wide world of snacks. And who better to start off our discussion than with the king of snacking and popular culture? Here's my conversation with Mark Summers. So on this episode of Proof, you know, we're talking about snacks, and you spent a good chunk of your professional life on the Food Network show Unwrapped telling stories about snacks. I want to know what snacks would we find right now in Mark Summers' pantry? Personally, my favorite snacks still are Hostess Twinkies. It's just the most ridiculous <laughs> in the world. And almost any Hostess product, but cupcakes and Twinkies uh, tend to thrive. Um, my wife has, always has frozen Nestle cookies uh, in, the, in the refrigerator freezer so that when the grandkids come over, she can pop them in the uh, oven and, you know, seven or eight minutes, uh, they have fresh cookies. And I, I called my grandson the other day and uh, I, I FaceTimed him. I said, what was your favorite part about being over my house over the weekend? He said, cookies. So those things stick in kids' minds for, for whatever reason, you know. What is it about the act of snacking that's so joyful? You pretty much know you shouldn't be doing it, but it tastes so darn good. Yeah, it does feel a little bit naughty. Okay, let's talk about Unwrapped. There's been over 20 seasons of the show, hundreds of episodes, which for a TV show, that is a generational success. Why do you think, Mark, the show has resonated so much with viewers? One is, you know, the Mr. Rogers effect of seeing how things are made. The weirdest thing I ever saw was I went into the Peeps factory. And years ago, when Peeps first came out, they used to hand paint Peeps. It would take like 20 hours to do a Peep. And now they have a machine that you know, kicks out a million peeps a day. But it's fascinating that, you know, now there's not women in the back hand painting these things. They just shoot them out like crazy. And the amount of sugar that's on the floor at the Just Born factory, because they hit these things with so much sugar and a lot of it falls off, it's it's fascinating. I feel lucky that I was able to visit so many of those places, um, you know, ice cream factories and things like that, where you, you kind of know how it's made, but until you actually see it being done, it's a whole different thing. All right, last question, Mark. Do you have a favorite potato chip flavor. I, I love potato chips, so I, I got I got to ask you, what is your favorite potato chip flavor? Barbecue. <laughs> I just love barbecue chips. What's yours, Kevin? I grew up in Toronto, so I'm, I have Canadian citizenship. I love ketchup flavored chips. Have you ever had that before? I know, but you know, when I was in Europe, not this last trip, but for years, I don't see as much paprika chips, okay? My background is Hungarian and Hungarians love paprika. And uh, so I would always get those. But last time I was in Europe, um, I had a hard time finding them. So don't know if they're around, but the barbecue, I think, would be number one. All right. So any proof listeners from Europe uh, come across any Hungarian chips, send it to America's Test Kitchen. We'll forward <laughs> it to Mark. We'll make sure he gets it by the box full. That would be amazing. That's the legendary Mark Summers. His new podcast is called Mark Summers Unwraps. Today from America's Test Kitchen, it's Proof Presents Snacks. I'm Kevin Pang. Let me get that Cheetos dust off my fingers and stick around. How 
How about we begin our journey into snacking with a game show? We're calling it Guess, Guess That, that Ship. Ship. I'll turn things over to Proof's Gen Z summer intern and your host, Lindsay Polvoy. Hello, hello, Proof listeners. It's a special day here at ATK. And that's not just because the Proof team let me leave the 2x4 piece of plywood they call my desk. Today, I'm hosting Guess That Chip, the game show where we have contestants guess the flavor and origin of different bags of chips from around the globe. I'm sitting down right now with two amazing test cooks here at America's Test Kitchen, Lon Lamb and Antoinette Johnson. Lon is the senior editor for Cook's Illustrated Magazine, a cast member on America's Test Kitchen, and the brains behind the popular YouTube show, Technically. I'm so ready for chips. And Antoinette is the first ever winner of ATK's new competition show, America's Test Kitchen, The Next Generation. She's also the author of the forthcoming cookbook, Mostly Homemade. Very excited for that to drop. Hi, Antoinette. Hey. What's up? Let's get started with the rules. There's going to be three rounds. In each round, you'll both be blindfolded and handed a bowl of chips. You'll get 30 seconds to blind taste the chips and guess their flavor. If you get the answer correct, you'll get a point. Whoever gets the most points wins a very special prize. Very exciting. I'm excited. I think I'd like a giant chip trophy, please. (laughs) Okay, so right now I'm having Lon and Antoinette put on their blindfolds. We have our wonderful Alex Curran Cardarelli running to get our first bowl of chips. And now we are setting those down in front of Lon and Antoinette. Okay, so I'm putting 30 seconds on my clock in three, two, one. Let me get another one. When I smell it, it reminds me of like pulled pork barbecue. Mm. But when I taste it, it doesn't taste like it. So it's a ridge chip and it's pretty crunchy. It's not crispy. Um, It smells savory. It smells meaty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, I was getting meaty too. The reason why I said pulled pork, it has that kind of like vinegary smell that sometimes like a certain Eastern Carolina barbecue sauces have. So Mm. it immediately makes me think of that. But when I taste it, I just get savory and salty. It tastes kind of like like a Chinese roast pork, but not not like a red cooked, like more of a straight up roast. Okay, and that's time. So Antoinette, would you like the opportunity to guess that chip? Yes, I'm going to say pulled pork chip. And Lon? I'm going to go with the Chinese style roast pork. On the count of three, you'll pull your blindfolds up and I will reveal that chip flavor. One, two, three. So we have Harris Roast Pork Sandwich. I feel like we were close. We did pretty good. We were pretty close. And because we both guessed some type of roast pork style, Mm -hmm. we're going to give you both that point. It's a tie! Oh, we did good. Actually, let me try one. I want to get in on that. Alex, you want one? (laughs) Alex is them. I'm the producer being treated like the intern. This is my (laughs) swap. I'm on my power trip today. (laughs) Now we'll be back for the next two rounds after our next few stories. Don't miss me too much. Hers Philly roast pork sandwich potato chips may be the pride of Philadelphia, but several hundred miles away, our neighbors to the north have their own coveted potato chip. Somewhere on Earth, there exists a land of unparalleled beauty. Here, nature is pristine, the mountains majestic, and the snacking culture is first-rate. This is the Great White North. Welcome to Canada. I learned a great many things in my four formative years living in Canada, like saying washroom instead of bathroom, measuring in kilometers and Celsius, Learning to sing O Canada in both English and French. Terre de nos aïeux. 
<coughs> okay, that's all you get. And in Canada, I learned to love ketchup potato chips. If you're a Canadian and listening to this, you're probably thinking, yeah, Kevin, preach, brother. Ketchup chips are awesome. And if you're American, there's a good chance your reaction is, bleh, ketchup chips? Are you insane? This binary reaction is what fascinates me. Why is it that on one side of this invisible 49th parallel, ketchup potato chips are enjoyed and beloved, and on the other side, it's met with disgust? The best way to think about ketchup-flavored chips is to not think of them as chips slathered on with ketchup. Of course, that sounds unappetizing. Rather, start with a barbecue chip, turn down the smoky flavors, and turn up the sweet tomato. Once you've tried ketchup chips, it's hard not to like them. It might be the word ketchup that throws people off. We're perfectly fine with sour cream and onion. It's all a matter of exposure. Now, it is possible to find ketchup chips in the U.S., like in parts of Pennsylvania, the cradle of American potato chip manufacturing. You might also find it stateside without the ketchup branding. Zapp's Kettle Potato Chips, based out of Louisiana, has a flavor called Evil Eye. It's essentially ketchup chips, and it's really good. But I keep thinking about why Americans just haven't embraced ketchup chips the way Canadians have. So to find out, I reached out to one of Canada's foremost food writers. Chris Nuttlesmith was a longtime restaurant critic for The Globe and Mail, which is Canada's national newspaper. But he's best known as a judge on Top Chef Canada. Chris also has a new cookbook out called Cook It Wild, which focuses on great meals for camping. But today, my conversation with Chris is all about ketchup chips. So Chris, please describe for us uncultured Yankees, what do ketchup chips taste like? So imagine this beautiful, starchy, potatoey, salty, savory, crunchy deliciousness paired with the sweet and sour, savory slap of ketchup. What else do you want? Why do you think it is that when we survey Americans, there's this aversion to it? Like when I tell folks about ketchup chips, their first reaction is always, ugh, that sounds gross. I don't understand it. I will never understand it. I mean, ketchup chips are this perfect snack food. Americans, you will eat like flaming hot Funyuns for breakfast and a six pack of Mountain Dew and you think that's cool. And you hear the words ketchup chips and you lose your... I don't, I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. I think I just heard the U.S. Department of State revoking your passport, Chris. <laughs> I say this as someone holding dual citizenship, but what is it about potato chip culture in Canada that's so much more sophisticated than in America? It's where all dressed up chips come from. There's ketchup chips. Of course, there's pickled flavored chips. What's going on with your level of potato chip culture? Chips are seen here as a vehicle for other flavors and also for other cultures. That's one of the real fun things. So, you know, ketchup chips is one of the OG kind of strange flavors, dill pickle chips as well. But now you go to a supermarket in any major city in Canada and you're going to find masala flavor chips. You're going to find chips with Japanese flavorings. You're going to find chips with flavorings from around the world. Chris, you wrote about this recently, about the origins of ketchup-flavored chips. And this was back in the early 70s and the Hostess Company in Canada. Pick up that story. Tell us about where ketchup chips come from. Hostess. Uh, they were struggling in the 70s. It's the Nixon years. They're looking for new ideas, new flavors. And someone there who I guess wasn't all that bright thought, we should do fruit-flavored chips. Total failure. Like, they launched these things, and everybody said, that's disgusting, move on. And then instead of just accepting defeat, they decided, you know, we're going to try once more. They tried with a different vegetable, the lowly tomato. They made ketchup chips, and it's stuck. Is there a Canadian chip brand that Americans should order if they want to taste real ketchup chips? I still think, and it pains me to say this, that Lay's is the gold standard. Lay's just something about that chemically ketchup-y kind of artificial genuineness. Just really, I love it when I'm snacking. But Old Dutch, honestly, is a fantastic brand. I would say it's kind of the... 
in some strange way, maybe not the Mercedes-Benz of ketchup chips, but it's just a little more artisanal tasting. They use great potatoes. It's a little more interesting. But still, remember, we're talking about ketchup chips here. You are eating junk. That's Chris Nuttle-Smith, author of the book Cook It Wild, ketchup chip expert, and all-around swell Canadian. And American listeners, you know what to do. Call your congressman, write letters to the editor, peacefully protest, demand ketchup chips. Well, if I didn't convince you about ketchup chips, can we try to convince you to take an actual snack break? Maybe Sophie Borowski, a member of ATK's research analytics and data team, can talk you into it. This is a call to snackshin. I'm here in the community kitchen of America's Test Kitchen headquarters. Today is the first day we're trying something new. Snack time. Now, you may hear those words and picture sticky-fingered preschoolers eating animal crackers and spilling juice. Blue, what are you up to? Come on, it's just about snack time. And for many Americans, that's where the formal snack time ends. Snacking in the U.S. often takes the form of a mindless, solitary activity, born out of necessity. Something shoved into your mouth, often on the run, throughout the hustle and bustle of daily life. But not for me. I am a self-proclaimed snacker. If I'm not making myself a mini charcuterie board, I'm probably munching on a tea cake or a cookie. I'm also a research analyst here at ATK which basically means I ask questions and try to answer them for a living. And there's one question that's been rattling around in my brain for a while. Why do so many other countries have snack breaks down to a science, while snacking looks like something else entirely here in the U.S.? When I was studying abroad in France during college, I was introduced to a snacking culture that was vastly different from how many of us snack in the U.S., All of a sudden, I was surrounded by cafes that not only allowed patrons to sip their espressos and nibble their pastries for hours, they encouraged it. And I discovered the world of formalized snack times, something that would change my life forever. When I went back home to the States after studying abroad, I became that annoying person who pushed organized snack times on anyone and everyone in my life. Despite my best efforts, I was met with the stubborn reality of American culture and ideals. Many American snack foods, those day-glow orange cheese doodles and sawdust-tasting nutrition bars, are optimized for efficiency. That go-go-go mentality that dominates our lives in the U.S. According to the global market research firm Mintel, American snackers rank convenience as one of the most important factors for choosing a snack. And around 80% prefer snacks that they don't have to prepare. For many Americans, snacking is solitary and unceremonious. And this is especially the case for adults. So, I want to know, can I get the U.S., or at least my colleagues, to adopt a formalized snack time? To begin this journey, I first want to take you to the Victorian era in London to talk about the origins of one example of a slower, more contemplative form of snacking, afternoon tea. It's said that one of Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting would often find herself peckish between lunch and dinner. So, she began requesting tea and something to snack on to curb her hunger. Eventually, she started to invite her friends, and it quickly caught on within her circle. It's believed that Queen Victoria herself used to host massive gatherings of people for afternoon tea time cementing it as a popular custom within English high society. Afternoon tea was no longer a solo activity to be hidden away. It was a practical and accepted way to socialize with others. 
Nowadays, it looks much more like a casual afternoon tea and scone break shared with friends or family. Unless, of course, you're celebrating an event like a birthday. But while afternoon tea and British culture seem to go hand-in-hand as perfectly as jam and clotted cream, this tradition actually originated across the pond. In France. Tea first made its way to Paris from China in 1636, a mere two decades before it hopped over to England. And it was eagerly embraced by the French aristocracy. As with most formalized snack times around the world, French afternoon tea time emerged from the hunger and tiredness of that pernicious time between lunch and dinner. Tea salons served as hubs for upper-crust intellectuals looking to socialize and engage in deep conversation, all while sipping on a hot beverage and munching on some sweet treats. And today, the legacy of taking an organized snack break remains. In France, goûter is not the same as a simple snack. It's a meal in its own right. The goûter consists of a drink, usually tea or coffee for the adults and juice or milk for the children, as well as some sort of sweet, like a cake, pastries, crepes, or brioche with jam or Nutella, or ice cream in the summer. I'm talking with my former host family from when I studied abroad in France. Alice and Jean-Pierre Jeans are the ones who introduced me to the ubiquitous snack break, the goûter. Most of the time, you eat something like a shared cake, pastry, or a homemade crepe, they say. Goûter is the French verb for to taste, but it also describes this time of day around 4 or 5 p.m. And while goûter started off as being for children specifically, In the early 2000s, the mindset shifted into goûter being for everyone. Here's how Jean-Pierre, my host dad, explained it. So here in France, we have four meals, uh, the breakfast, the lunch, the goûter, and the dinner. And uh, it is very important to us to respect uh, these four meals uh, because it's very healthy and uh, we don't have to, to snack all day long. Goûter is designated by French nutritionists as a way to combat one of the greatest crimes you can commit in France. Grignotage. Grignotage is what can be described as mindless snacking throughout the day. What many would think of as how we sometimes snack in the U.S. Jean-Pierre explains... In fact, he says, France is so against grignotage that advertisements on television and on billboards promoting snack foods contain governmental warnings against snacking. That's my host mom, Alice, who's recalling some of the popular phrases from these ads. Eat. Move. Don't eat anything too salty, too sugary, too fatty. I even found an advertisement specifically warning children about snacking during the day. Pour être en forme. Hey, c'est quoi ça? Ben, vas-y, Evite to stay in shape, avoid snacking during the day. But even though objectively, the foods that people eat can be quite similar when you compare goûter and grignotage, the key is not what you eat, but how you eat it. Most treats for goûter are homemade or from a bakery, which requires a certain level of thought and care. And it's a designated moment in the day, something to look forward to together. No, food is life. (laughs) So clearly, the French are passionate when it comes to snacking but they're not the only ones who take communal snack time seriously. Cardamom buns, cinnamon buns, glaze things, sometimes cake, and then it would be like a spread of coffee tea, maybe ice cream in the summer. That's Olivia Counter, test cook extraordinaire at America's Test Kitchen and our official resident Swede. She's talking about an integral part of Swedish snack culture, fika. It's one of those words where there's no like English definition, I think. But it's a 15-minute break for you to not focus on anything but having a coffee and maybe a 
suck. And Swedes do not mess around when it comes to their fika offerings. Olivia describes her grandmother's fika toolbox. She's always stocked with sweets. So she has like a normal freezer on her fridge and then she has a deep freezer in the basement with all kinds of cakes and cookies and ice creams ready to go for fika. Like there's always some type of chocolate cake in the freezer ready to be cut up for anyone. Olivia grew up in the United States, but her grandparents live in Sweden. So she spent her childhood visiting often and even spent some time at university there. It was kind of just a moment that I could get out of my work day and my school day, and that would energize me to keep going for the remaining hours. In Sweden, fika is baked into your day. Whether you're at work or school or home, it's a moment when everyone collectively stops and takes the time to have a snack. In fact, in many cases, it's written right into employees' contracts that they are entitled to fika breaks. So we are entitled to have approximately six minutes break every hour. But then we, we pick those six minutes and make it 15, 20, or 30 minutes in the morning and in the afternoon. That's Peter, Olivia's grandfather, calling from Sweden. He talked to me about what fika looks like in the Swedish workplace. And it happens twice a day. Round 10 o'clock and round 3 o'clock. Yeah, you just uh, have your coffee, have a chat with somebody you like. While fika is so ingrained in Swedish culture today, that wasn't always the case. In fact, the interesting history of this snack break begins with the history of the word fika itself. In Swedish, the word for coffee is café. If you're thinking... Fika sounds a bit like a pig Latin version of café. It's because it is. In the 1700s, coffee was the drink to have in Sweden. As we remember from French tea salons, people love to sip their hot beverages and converse about whatever high society individuals discuss. And these Swedish coffee houses became hubs for intellectuals and politicians to gather and talk about culture, new ideas, politics, anti-monarch sentiments. Okay, well, at least that was King Gustav III's fear when he saw how popular coffee houses had become in Sweden. So he did what any reasonable guy would do, and he decided to ban coffee. Multiple times. Over the course of 70 years. It wasn't just that he thought coffee was the gateway to anti-monarch beliefs. He also thought that the drink was bad for your health and too expensive to import all the way to Sweden. But no matter the reason, as with any substance that becomes illicit, the people of Sweden rolled over and accepted the king's word, and no one drank coffee ever again. Just kidding. Obviously, much like prohibition in the United States, coffee only grew in popularity. It even spread to the lower classes. And the inverted word for café, fika, became used as a way for the Swedish people to covertly discuss drinking coffee. Eventually, after King Gustav's death, coffee became rooted in the Swedish home as a staple beverage for social gatherings. Served along baked goods, of course. Yeah, I, I was... Uh... Surprised that fika doesn't exist everywhere because it has a certain value. Peter told me that while fika is a way for people to take a break together over a coffee and a snack, it represents so much more. It's also a time where, where you can check in to people. Are you feeling all right? Do you need help? Uh, uh, you look a bit worried. Yeah, what can I do for you, and so on. And I, I think it's important for well-being also. In the Swedish workplace, people look out for each other. You check in with a coworker that seems to be struggling. You encourage those around you to join you in taking a break. Fika creates the space for all that. It's not just a snack break. It's part of the Swedish lifestyle. A way to be mindful and connect with others. 
It represents valuing your time and energy. Now that I was newly equipped with all this good snacking inspiration, I wanted to see if I could bring it to ATK. I think this is mine. Did you make tea? Really? Did you make tea? I did. Which one? Which one's yours? Oh, the one that has the thing wrapped around. Really good. So, I'm back in the office, and it's the first time we're holding an organized snack break. A handful of us are gathered in the community kitchen. There's a simple strawberry cake, some cookies, sourdough. People are making tea and chatting. This um, reminds me of that episode in The Office where they have, like, the finer but things club. And, yeah. and they have, like, their little sandwiches. Here, like, no paper plates. No, but, At know. some point, the conversation turns to the topic of the hour. Gushing. Do you snack at home? Like, when you're, if you're ever working at home or whatever? It's more dangerous when I work at home because nobody's watching me. And I'll just snack the whole day. The whole day? But you don't have, like, a dedicated snack time. I don't have dedicated snack time. I'm a very it's just a few of us in the kitchen. But every once in a while, someone pops in to fill up their water bottle or grab something from the fridge. And I'm taking every opportunity to finagle folks into joining and taking a break. Hello. Are you all busy at all? Yes. Brian, are you here to, uh, do you want to participate in our little snack time? I would love to. I'm catching a train. I'm sorry. But it does look very good. All good stuff. I like snacks. I'm a big fan. I just had late lunch, so I'm full. Do you need me to do anything? I'm going to go with the butter cookie with cardamom. Okay. Finally got one. I I have to to run because that's always the case. But it's really good. Is it okay to snack and run? I mean, that's the question. Yeah. How do you feel? Oof. Listen, it's not like I didn't expect it. People are so busy at work all the time. The community aspect of eating is cast aside in favor of accomplishing more, working harder, or getting to the next activity. Food so often takes a backseat to our overscheduled lives even at a company that literally centers around food. We're constantly tasting and sampling and trying, so many people just don't have the interest in, or the appetite for, taking a break to eat more food. Take Fei Yang, a photo test cook on the Cook's Country break team. Of the day. Also, people in the kitchen, like, we don't really take lunch breaks either because we're constantly eating from the table, you know? But this mindset misses the point of an organized snack break. Sure, there's a function to refueling your body with a beverage and a little bite to eat. But at its core, the formal snack break represents something larger than just a cup of coffee or a slice of cake. It represents the valuation of our time, the prioritization of community, and the embrace of sitting down to enjoy good food. It's about taking the time to check in with yourself and others. So, this is my proposal. Take 15 minutes out of your day to sit down with a snack and a friend and take a break. Put it in your calendar if you have to. Don't focus on what you have to do next, how busy you are. Just sit and be and eat and enjoy. This is my not-so-radical idea. This is my call to snackshin. Welcome back to Get That Chip! Now, after our last round, Lon and Antoinette are both tied with one point. But that could easily change after this next round. I'm pumped. I'm ready. I'm focused. I'm ready for round two. Had my palate cleanser. Let's go. So we're placing down our next bowl of chips. One, two, three. Taste. Oh, what is this? Oh, oh. So, oh, right off the back, texturally, this is different. It's like a little bit similar to a kettle chip, but I don't think it's a kettle chip. It's, it's a little corny, right? Mm-hmm. A little corny. I wonder, now, are all the chips potato? 
it's savory, but there's something that like hits me at the tip of my tongue. I don't know if it's like dill pickly or... <laughs> there's not much aroma, hint of acidity. Mm, I feel like I'm almost um, there. And uh, for our listeners, Antoinette is shoveling some chips into her mouth. Eight chips in. Okay, so that is time. <laughs> I'm gonna make a wild guess. Ooh, gonna make a wild guess. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Mexican street corn? Oh, that's Ooh. a good one. Ooh. <laughs> we are in the same direction because I was thinking like white chicken chili. Like, mm. so similar flavor profile. Right. And we have... Kibo chickpea chips with the pico de gallo flavor. Okay. Okay. What? Okay. Chickpea chips. The texture's great. The flavor is not there. I'm going to say that our closest contestant was Lon with the Mexican street corn. I objected. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I feel like we can split the point. Okay, so Lon and Antoinette. You both started this round with one point each because you both guessed close to Hare's Roast Pork Chips. Now, after round two, Lon is in the lead over Antoinette with two points. We'll be back soon for the third and final round of Guess That Chip! We'll talk more snacks after the break, but right now, I gotta take care of something. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's Kevin Pang. You know, when I tell people I work at America's Test Kitchen, they assume I have the answer to questions like, what should I bring to a friend's barbecue? Or what should I pack for my kid's lunch? But what do I know? I'm just a podcast host. Hey, Kevin. Just who I need. It's our amazing test cook, Olivia Counter. I got you. Heard of mangoes? They can be used in just about anything. I mean, yeah, they're my favorite fruit, but they go in anything? Really? Yeah, the sweet and tangy flavors are the perfect accent in Cook's Country's seared salmon with mango mint salsa. If you like fruity and refreshing desserts, mangoes brighten up Cook's Illustrated's mango, kiwi, and blueberry pavlovas. And you can let them stand out, the star of the show, and my personal favorite, Amki Lassi, or our take on Mango Lassi. Savory, sweet, refreshing, mangoes fit in without blending in. Unless you blend them, then they blend in. Learn more about the versatility of mangoes at mango.org. All right, we've talked about the taste of snacks, why some flavors are more popular, and hopefully we've convinced you to take a longer snack break. Now let's talk about the fascinating world of how snacks are packaged and sold. Our next segment comes from managing producer Yumi Araki. All right, hear me out. One of my biggest pet peeves in life is when snacks are wrapped in bad packaging. How am I supposed to open this? <laughs> I can't do it. I'm talking about those bags where there's no perforation on the edges. So you've got to open the bag the pinchy way, as in pinch each side of the bag and hope all of that pulling creates enough inertia to open the dang thing. You pull and pull, and a lot of the time, you end up like Homer Simpson from that episode when he's chosen to go into space. Hey guys, look what I smuggled aboard. Homer, no! Huh? Careful, they're ruffled. I'm especially peeved by bad packaging because it kind of ruins the snacking experience. By the time I'm finished wrestling with the wrapper, I'm like, do I even want to eat this thing anymore? It might seem like I'm letting something kind of trivial bother me. But listen, I grew up around great snack packaging. If you've been listening to Proof for the last couple of years, you probably know that I'm from Japan. And I'd venture to say that very few countries take packaging as seriously as Japan does. Take the art of furoshiki, for instance. The art of folding fabric around gifts or clothes is a tradition that's more than a thousand years old. Not only are furoshiki ornamental, they have utility. The furoshiki is sometimes meant to disguise what's inside. Other times, when you fold the cloth a certain way, you can create handles, like in the way furoshiki are folded around bento boxes. 
Even the written character for tsumu, or to wrap, is derived from the image of a woman embracing a baby in her womb. So all of this is to say, the art of enveloping or wrapping stuff up is embedded in our way of life. And we've been thinking about how to thoughtfully package things for a very long time. Here's a modern example of thoughtful packaging. Think about the last time you might have eaten a box of pokki, or paki, as it's pronounced in the West. The name pokki mimics the Japanese onomatopoetic word for snapping, pokipoki. And if you've never had them before, there are these delicious chocolate-covered biscuit sticks. They make a few flavor variations, but the standard chocolate flavor comes in an iconic red box. Inside the red box is a silver bag that keeps the pokki sticks inside. You might notice that the top of the silver bag is lined with a jagged edge. When you pull between two of the small triangles that make the jagged edge, a seamless tear forms. You now have easy access to the pokki sticks. Pokki's satisfyingly well-designed packaging is not unique in Japan. In fact, Japan has an entire organization dedicated to all things packaging. I wanted to geek out over why thoughtful packaging is important to the snacking experience. So I called up the Japan Package Design Association, or the JPDA. My name is Yojinobu Toto. My name is Tsukasa Kohara. Nobuto-san is the chairman, and Kohara-san is the executive director. Every two years, the JPDA holds a contest and gives out awards to the best design packages from all over Japan. Nobuto-san heads the adjudication process, and this year, there are over a thousand entrants. Not all entrants are snack or food-related, but those are naturally the ones that I was curious about. Among this year's gold winner selection was a photo of two white boxes stacked on top of each other. Printed on each side of the boxes were the faces of big cartoon oranges. More accurately, they're mikang, which are a type of Japanese satsuma orange. Mikang are a popular snack, especially during the winter months when they're in season. These cartoon mikang printed on the boxes have the most adorable googly eyes. The googliness of their eyes comes from two holes cut out next to each other, which form a pair of pupils. As a result, these mikang look furtive. Yet at the same time, they're definitely also pleading for you to see what's inside the box. The same holes that make the mikang's expressions so googly and cute are what contribute to the box's ingenuity. Kohara-san explains that the mikan's pupils are holes into which you can insert your fingers. They're there so you can carry the box with ease. I'm always struggling when I get big boxes from Amazon and they don't have holes on the sides. They're a pain to carry up the stairs. So I was blown away by this detail. But there was more. Inside the box are the mikan. And stuck to the fruit are stickers that look like eyes. And if you look closely, some of the mikan are sporting band-aids above their sticker eyes. Kohara-san points out that these band-aids indicate where there are blemishes on the fruit. These stickers are proof that the manufacturer has examined all the mikan that end up in the box and into your hands. Not all of the mikang in the box have band-aids on them, but for the ones that do, it's a sign that despite their blemishes, they're safe to eat. So don't throw them away. Nobuto-san, the head judge, notes that this is a crucial part of the design. He says the fact that they addressed food loss in the design concept was why it earned a gold award. Most importantly, Nobuto-san and Kohara-san say that the combination of the ergonomic thoughtfulness, consideration towards food loss, and the cuteness of the eyes make getting a box of oranges an entertaining experience. But the ultimate kicker lies in the name of the box. The title of this winning entry is... I am a mikan. I am mikan, as in 
E Y E M Mikan. Get it? Because you use the Mikan's eyes to carry the box. Gotta love that triple threat of being punny, cute, and thoughtful. Another package that caught my eye was a box full of dagashi, or Japanese old timey candy. This entry won a silver award at this year's JPDA contest. Inside the box, there's Japanese candy dots, there's grape flavored bubblegum, and there are these classic Ramune tablets, which I guess are kind of like Smarties, but they're flavored with the eponymous Ramune drink. If you know, you know. The box isn't just any box, though. It comes with cardboard pieces that you can assemble into a makeshift candy stand. It's designed so you can prop the 21 different candy varieties onto a tiered display. And on top of the box is a cardboard awning. Oh, and one more thing. Kohara san says the box even comes with cardboard coins, which is not just a fun little addition, but a cue for how you should be interacting with the box and its contents. He says that this whole candy store setup helps foster communication between, say, the main recipient, probably a child, and their family and friends. It's like playing house, but you own a candy shop. Maybe you even learn a little bit of math along the way with the coins. These snacks aren't just something that you open and eat. They're also something you experience. The head judge, Nobuto-san, wasn't actually all that taken by the dagashi box's design at first. But he came around to it. The aesthetics for this dagashi box aren't super flashy, he says. They're sort of facile and rustic compared to the other entrants from past years. But the fact that the judges put a lot of stock into the experiential part of the design is something he was pleasantly surprised with. He thinks they'll see more of this quality in future winning designs. He says, it's not just about how it looks or how delicious the candy might appear. It's about how, through this box, a child is able to interact and get introduced to this culture of dagashi up close. He says, I thought that was a really fresh take on what design can do, and it's given us a new standard that we can apply. I think that's the reason it was chosen for the Silver Award. Good design is important because it helps enhance the experience of whatever you're unpacking. Whether it's rushing to get that pokki open to share during fika, or getting a kick out of fruit with googly eye stickers, your day is hopefully made that much better, even if it's for a teeny tiny bit. Small victories, they go a long way in this life. This little piece of perforation makes all of the difference. Welcome back, Proof listeners, to Get That Chip! I'm your host, Lindsay, the Gen Z intern. And once again, I'm sitting down with our wonderful test cooks, Lon and Antoinette. After our last round, Lon is in the lead over Antoinette with two points. Antoinette has one point, but that could easily change. You know, I'm behind right now, but I'm going to redeem myself in round three. Fantastic. It's time for your final chip. What is happening here? I smell seafood. It's fishy. Yeah. But it's sweet. Is this um, like a dried squid chip? Well, I feel like I have a really prominent flavor to take care of the sweet, but I don't know what that fish is. I grew up with this like dried squid snack that was sold in Asian markets and it tasted kind of like this. Oh, interesting. I want to know more about that snack. That sounds cool. These are humongous chips. (laughs) They don't like fit in my mouth. (laughs) Okay, and that's time. So, Lon, since you got that point in the last round, do you want to guess first? I'm sticking with the dried squid. Yeah, I'm sticking with it. And Antoinette? I'm going to say, I don't know what that 
fishy smell flavor is, but when I taste it, it definitely is giving like a sweet chili type of vibe. So I'm going to say a sweet chili scallop. Okay. So now that we're finished, you can both take off your blindfolds. So from round two, Lon had two points and Antoinette had one. And now we're going to reveal our final chip of Guess That Chip. Drum roll, please. And we had Lay's Thai Rock Hot Chili Squid Chips. Whoa. We nailed it together. We did. See, we should be in a group. (laughs) We were close. We're going to each give you half a point for that. Okay. Great. I'll take it. Let's announce the final scores. At the end of Guess That Chip, we had in second place Antoinette with one and a half point. Thank you. It was an honor. (laughs) Um, And in first place, with two and a half points, we have Blablam. Chip trophy, please. (laughs) Lon, how does it feel to be crowned Proof's Chip Taste Queen? Pretty good. Better than expected. Am I am I the first winner of this game show? You are the first and probably only ever winner of this game show. <laughs> Bragging rights. Absolutely. Yes. And in addition to that everlasting glory, your amazing prize is all of the open bags of chips. Yay! Uh, this is actually not bad. My team keeps a stack quarter. I'm going to share with my group. Fantastic. Will you share with me too? Oh, yeah. Okay, perfect. We'll, we'll go get some stacks now. I love it. <laughs> Thank you to our proof listeners for joining me in my first task as an intern that doesn't involve ironing Kevin's wardrobe. If you like this segment, please email my supervisors with how awesome you think I am. And this closes out. Yes! Hmm. What? What'd you say? Oh, I got to do the credits? Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, Thanks to the Proof staff for bringing us today's episode. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Lindsay Polavoy, and I'm the TV and podcast intern. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. Scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis. Is our director of post-production and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Sarah D. Collins. Special thanks to everyone who took the time to speak with us for this episode. Merci, tak, cheers, and arigato gozaimasu. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, The Mango Board and Plugra Premium Butter. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>